Welcome back to the Village Bonfire for another episode of the Wild Sacred Journey podcast. A podcast not just for your mind, but for your body and spirit too. Here we don't just talk theory. Instead, we compassionately engage with our lived experiences and a wide variety of topics together, all to invite the question, in these times we find ourselves in, how do we be more human? Thank you for being here. May these conversations awaken, inspire, repair, and evolve something deep within each of us and serve the wild, tender aliveness of our personal and collective hearts. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild Sacred Journey podcast. So as always, we begin with taking a few deep breaths in and out together. Feeling the natural beginning of each breath, the natural emptying, taking in, letting go. And then also starting to find the pause, the taking in and feeling that brief pause of fullness at the top, life bursting at the seams and then the exhale and that brief space of emptiness at the bottom. A silence, a death, and then it begins again in and out. And perhaps you also start to notice sounds around you. Maybe you notice them not just with your ears, but also like on your skin, like wind. Wind has a sound. It also has a feel. Perhaps you start to notice temperature or texture, sensation. smell, and through becoming aware of those spaces around us, the things around us with our bodies, we come into relationship with the land, plants, animals, fungi, insects, reptiles, rocks, crystals, earth, sky, water, celestial bodies, everything, all the elements, all the pieces, all the humans, all the technology and the buildings and the creations of all kinds. And when we come into relationship, it's hard to not say thank you, thank you, thank you. And so from that place of our bodies, our breath, of love, of relationship, I light the candle, our village bonfire. Welcome you all into this space. So today I have with me Evelyn, 
And so I met Evelyn down in Florida through some dear friends, and she has such an immediate presence of just warmth and enthusiasm and just a hugely rich and colorful history. And so I was like, well, I have to have her on the podcast. Plus she said right away, oh my gosh, you have a podcast. I want to be on it. (laughs) Basically before we'd exchanged any other words. And so, yeah, so I'm super happy to have Evelyn. Evelyn has been caring for the dying for her whole life. As an EMT, she knew she wanted to continue that journey, went into nursing and hospice work. She is a board certified nurse coach and has been a death doula. And so she holds powerful space for humans and their families at that end of life transition. She's currently on a break to concentrate on her own healing, be with her own trauma and grief in sacred space. But she's excited to also eventually deepen her own practice as an end of life coach working with people with life-limiting diagnoses to help them clarify and live their best lives with the time they have left. So I feel like the last few years have really shown us that grief is everywhere. We've been really, like we've had this global pandemic, we've had just unprecedented numbers of, of dead and dying, and we've really seen how much we avoid that subject, how uncomfortable it makes us, and also how ever-present it is. And, and also it seems to me like there's been a lot of highlighting in terms of like what it is to have good deaths and what it is to maybe have messier deaths or sort of deaths that don't feel as clean and complete. And so, and then beyond even grief as, a, as, as being specific to death, you know, grief is also, I've been really aware of how grief is showing up in my life in these other places and other ways that grief is actually a part of life as much as it is also a part of the transition to death, grief is really present with us actually through, through all things. And so, you know, I really, um, yeah, I'm really excited to have Evelyn on because I've, I've really come to realize how much grief is at the heart of being human and how much dying well has so much to do with how well we've actually lived to and the legacy that we leave when we go. And yet that's, these are both grief is such a uncomfortable emotion and a very often avoided emotion in our society and death is an often really avoided and uncomfortable topic in our society. So I'm thrilled to have Evelyn here to just dive into, um, into the things that are taboo. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. Yeah. So how, um, Yeah. So I, as always, I like to start by sort of inviting you, you know, in cultures around the world, when we often introduce ourselves more with ancestors, lineages, identities, roles, locations, whatever it is kind of beyond a professional bio, something that's more personal and relational to kind of orient you in the social fabric of things for other people. So how would you like to introduce yourself today anyway? (laughs) I love that you do that. I love everything about that because I have tried so hard when I meet someone, I don't want to know what they do for a living. I want to know what makes their heart dance, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. um, my family uh, came, well, half of my family came over on the Mayflower, uh, escaping the Church of England. And my father's mom was very into ancestry she was my my aunt my grandmother evie and so i was named after her Mm. and um also after my aunt evie so um her family um came yeah came over and um we have come from 
Quaker lineage. Um, I was raised by a very radical Quaker, um, peace activist, uh, good trouble, good white man, <laughs> who um, really taught me a lot about my unearned privilege and the importance of me using that to do good. Um, and he grew up uh, in, my, my father grew up in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, in a very conservative, wealthy um, law. Everyone's a lawyer. There was a lot of pressure for him to also become a lawyer. In fact, the pressure was so great, he decided he would go and figure out how the hell he was going to do it. And he went to law school and he got there. And uh, a year or so in, I don't know exactly, he said, get me out of here. Mm. And um, he left and he joined um, the American Friends Service Committee and threw himself into Quakerism. Um, he became um, big in uh, working, uh, was called down to Selma. Um, my mother and father met at the American Friends Service Committee and um, were both very committed to being a part of dismantling institutional racism. Um, and I just grew up with my dad always getting arrested. And I would always be with him at different peace protests. Um, I think it's important to say that I grew up in Movement for a New Society, which is um, a well-known um, kind of, I always say I grew up in a hippie commune. Um, it was a, an organization um, of mostly Quakers that were into practicing nonviolence, into committing good trouble, um, resisting racism and homophobia and all of the things that seem to be rearing their ugly heads again. But um, I was raised in a, in a very different place. I grew up in a house called Chrysalis. All the houses had different names. And my best friend grew up in Trollheim. And there was the crossing and the rainbow. And so I would say that my life from coming, my family, you know, them coming over and, and all of these, you know, lawyers. And um, I also come from a line of, you know, psychologists and um, my mother was mentally ill, but she was also an empath and intuitive and um, she's given me amazing gifts. And so I would say my life has been beautifully colorful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a long answer. Yeah. Mm. So I didn't realize uh, how much we'd had the, so I went to Earlham College and um, so yeah, so we have a, <clears throat> some Quaker I didn't realize we also had a Quaker connection. Oh two yeah, of us. <laughs> I'm very connected to the yearly yeah. meeting, the Quaker yearly meeting. I grew up there in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in the inner city. I was mostly in the '70s in West Philadelphia. My best friend Ingrid and I were probably the only white people. <laughs> like, like you know, there was the the crunchy white people that we lived with who were like mm -hmm. fight the power. And then, you know, we were mostly in the inner city. So mm -hmm. I was used to being the only white girl at school, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's funny, but I'm actually 
more comfortable around BIPOC people. Mm. Um, so it's interesting now that I'm about, I, I just mm-hmm. surrendered. I've surrendered yeah. and I'm living in just, it's just a wild circumstance. Yeah. So I'm practicing letting go mm-hmm. again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how from sort of that background, you know, yeah, where and how did that, that, that calling that you sort of told that you've told me you sort of have felt pretty much your whole life to, to be with people at that end of life transition in that death space, where and how did that start to kind of come through and what did that feel like? You know, I was born, that's my work here. My work Mm. here is to be with the dying and with people that have life-limiting diagnoses. And for as long as I can remember, I've been around very, either very sick people. Um, I uh, was a guardian of my paranoid schizophrenic stepfather. Um, And so I've been able to show up in these really uncomfortable spaces. And those are the places that I thrive. And so, I remember um, I was a single mom. I just want to say that. Um, I had my kids when I was 17. Mm. And um, I always knew how important education was. So I'm so grateful that no matter what my circumstances were in life, as long as I was taking a class, I felt like my life wasn't over. And at least I could get my education and that no one could take that from me. And I always knew that I was supposed to work with the dying. And it's just something that all I can say is I've had three friends whose mothers were dying that I was called to the bedside, like Evelyn, we need you. And um, it was a normal thing for me to be present for that really sacred space. And I just remember knowing there was just an inner knowing that Mm. I knew I wanted to help people because for me, service is everything. And Mm. if I'm not serving, I'm not really living. Um, Mm. Life for me of taking is not the life for me. So Mm. um, being with the dying is so sacred. And I remember being before going to nursing school, I said, Oh, my God, I have to be a hospice nurse. That's what I'm supposed to do. And I remember everyone wanted to deliver babies, everybody wanted to, you know, maybe do OBGYN. And I was the only nurse in a class of 50 people that wanted to be with the dying. And Mm -hmm. so I remember them just being like, God, you're so weird. Like, you don't want to save people. You don't want to. I said, No, I just, I want to be there and I want to help people to die. Mm. And I just remembered that was always just something that I never fit in. And, you know, I've never fit in in my life. So I would say (laughs) that that was okay for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, death is such, you know, well, birth as well. Both of these are these really liminal spaces, these portals of transformation, like, Mm -hmm. you know, taking nothing and turn it into something, taking something and transmuting it to nothing, you know, and watching it or being present with it as it transmutes to nothing. Right. And so, you know, both are kind of these liminal spaces and there is like liminal spaces are, we often feel very uncomfortable. A lot of that, I would say, 
majority percentage of that is probably just socialization, like how we're socialized in our culture, not actually innate to us as humans. And yet also, I think there is something that's a little innate to us because we see that throughout history, there have, have there are a lot of rituals and community, pra- there have been a lot of rituals and community practices around those liminal spaces and those transitions because, you know, humans have known for our entire history that those times are fruitful and challenging, right? And that powerful and painful, you know, gifting and wounding and that- And beautiful and messy. Yeah, and intense. Yeah. Is all of those things. And, you know, I want to say that I was a hospice nurse and then I found the International Nurse Coach Association and I became a nurse coach. And that's where I found my people. I found my people, um, the nurses that are on the fringe that no longer want to be a part of this broken system and want to really be able to show up for our patients in a powerful way. And I have to say that really I made the decision to leave bedside recently and um, to take the time to care for myself so that I can be a part of building a new system. I, I have no interest in changing this broken system. I don't want to try to fix it. And I feel so blessed that I am in this community of healers and empaths and end-of-life nurses and doulas and doctors that are death doulas and people that are just so committed. Um, I have end-of-life sisters that that are all over the country and we talk weekly, we Zoom weekly, we convene, we um, talk about, you know, these are um, people that are seers that are that are, are are amazing nurses. I have one who works with dying children, and just loves everything about just showing up. And that's not really my space, um, but it's all just magic. And the mm-hmm. fact that we can be here right now in this moment, you and I, I feel like we were supposed to meet. And when I met you, Kate, I mm-hmm. felt such a connection Mm. um and yeah and I asked before I I tried to get centered and I tried to pray and I asked the angels I said please take away my ego and just let me talk about the really important stuff Mm. Um, and so thank you thank you so I'm aware as you yeah well thank you first off And then I'm as aware as you're speaking that, you know, it is interesting because it feels like, you know, at one point, you know, sort of maybe during the enlightenment, maybe partly because of Greek philosophy, you know, but we sort of got into this kind of reductionist sort of deductionist kind of way of thinking about the world. And we've really like we in the West, we in white bodies, we of European descent, uh, you know, have gotten really good at kind of trying to compartmentalize things. And, and so it seems like, you know, maybe, and so when we hear doulas, whether it's birth doulas or death doulas, you know, a big part of what that role I think is trying to reclaim, or what I see that role is trying to reclaim kind of from the outside looking in 
is kind of this place of like, there's actually this holistic thing happening in these moments of transition. And what's happening is not purely physical or purely medical as Western medicine understands it. Mm. And so I'm curious because I, you know, I, we probably have listeners from all over. And so for you and I, as sort of empaths, intuitives, people who have contacts and a very real relationship with sort of the subtle world, whether that includes what, however we conceive of that, you know, um, and yet there may be people listening for whom that's like a more challenging concept or not so much a like lived experience that they're familiar with or, or, or is, um, or recognizes clearly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you can speak to like, especially cause since you've kind of come from like the EMT and sort of the nursing background, and then you've also kind of got the coaching and then you've got the death dueling, and then you've sort of got your own you know, intuitive and sort of seer kind of gifts, your own connection with the other side and, and with, with beyond the veil, if you want to call it that, but yeah, what is sort of, so yeah, how is that for you to be in kind of this really holistic space where spirituality and a, a concept of something bigger than us and just this moment, like, how does that sort of factor in? Because that I, I suspect many people either be either are religious but they're but the their sense of religion is still very like sort of theoretical and not maybe as embodied because a lot of religion is not very embodied mm-hmm. um or they may not feel themselves very religious or even very spiritual and so w- i guess what is kind of yeah do you have a a message or something you feel like, like to sort of share for people who may not intuitively or instinctively, or like initially feel that sense, that innate sense of spirituality in those moments of passing, like what, yeah. I love that question. If that makes sense. (laughs) So fertile. This ground is so fertile for us to be speaking. And, um, um, I would say that Death is our birthright. Mm. That's the first thing I want to say. And I always tell people we're all in line. None of us are getting out of here alive. (laughs) And so I know I want my death to be on my terms. And Mm. I want it to be a good death. And a good death is different for everybody. Mm. And I have seen so much death because I've been doing this, I would say for seven years now. So I have seen hundreds and hundreds of deaths, maybe thousands. Um, and I, I had this morning that people were coming to me too late. And so mm-hmm. I would get these families that would come in and they'd be in crisis because mm-hmm. their beloved is dying. Mm -hmm. And I would stop and I would just sit down with all of them in all of the mess. And I would just say, I'm here and I see you. Mm -hmm. This is the hardest thing that we do is saying goodbye, farewell, see you later. Mm -hmm. Someone that we love Mm -hmm. and that grief is the price of love Mm. and where would we be without love Mm. and i realize that it's 
in the mess and in the muck where we grow, right? So I go in there and I just say, I see all of you and I know you're all on your worst behavior. And I see people kind of feel <laughs> so people nervously laugh and they go, what do you mean? The angry people get angrier. The quiet ones completely shut down. Mm. Siblings will fight over the craziest shit that you've ever heard. <laughs> Some people will show up when Mima's dying and people don't even know who they are. Mm -hmm. And so being able to just say, I see you mm. and I'm here and I'll take all of it. And I'm going to hold space for this because this is sacred space. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to do in the modern healthcare system. And my last job in Philadelphia was in an Ivy League hospital and I was working inpatient hospice and people were coming to me on ventilators and we were doing removal, compassionate removal of life support. And it was so important to me to get the family together and to be able just for them to have the closure that they needed. Yeah. Um, and the sad part was we were understaffed. And mm -hmm. so there would be times where there was no social worker. So this multidisciplinary team was non-existent. And so the nurses and the CNAs, shout out to the CNAs that are really, my God, they're the eyes and ears. They're the ones that are bathing. I mean, I'm full care. I jump mm -hmm. in there and I want to be full care. There are some nurses that say, oh, I smell something, call the CNA. No, when I'm there, I'm all in. I want to be a part of the whole thing. I want to be a part of the bathing. I want to know what their favorite music is. I want to know, do they like touch? Do they not like touch? Because people are in life as they are in death. Mm. So if someone is closed off and someone doesn't want to talk, they're not going to want a room full of people. Um, so I try so hard to assess that. And I was so brokenhearted because I felt like there was no time. People were coming in and they were actively dying. And I thought, oh my God, what if we met them earlier? Mm -hmm. What if mm -hmm. when they got the diagnosis, mm -hmm. I could say, what about the rest of your beautiful life? And people don't want to talk about the end, Kate. And I did mm -hmm. extensive research on this. And I would go to parties and people would say, well, what kind of coach are you? And I would say end of life coach. And people would go, oh, no, mm -hmm. I got to get out of here. I don't want to talk about the end. Uh-uh. Mm -hmm. And so finally I said, how about the rest? Do you want to yeah. talk about the rest of your beautiful life? And then people went, oh my God, yes. Yeah. And so for me, I want to concentrate on the rest, not just the dying phase. I can hold space for all of that, but I want to see people. I've seen enough bad deaths. I've seen enough unrest. I've seen enough suffering and I've seen beautiful deaths, mm -hmm. you know, um, when the family can come together and can heal. And, um, but I really want to be part of that fertile ground to be able to show up for someone who has just gotten that diagnosis and mm. you know um we're all dying right but, you know that's it yeah that's what i was gonna dying. say like at some point we've all i mean we've all gotten that diagnosis from the moment we were born right. basically that is our birthright yeah. but no one wants yeah. to talk about that right yeah. and there was a time where it was normal everyone died at home 
right? Yeah. And so before the hospital system and all of that, there was this coming together around the deathbed mm -hmm. and people, the children, everyone would be there around the grandmother, the child, and it's been pushed off to hospitals now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so no one wants to talk about death. Everyone wants to talk about how can we extend it? Yeah. And you know what? I want to work with those people too. If, if somebody wants to extend their life, let's do it. Mm -hmm. You know, there are we are spiritual beings having a human experience and we are complicated mm -hmm. and people, I have seen people go without food or fluids for a month waiting to talk. I knew that they were waiting. Not mm -hmm. everyone knows, but why mm -hmm. was this mm -hmm. man who was in a coma, who was a bag of bones at this point, families in crisis, you know, they finally get out of crisis and he's still here. Yeah. And I kept asking the daughter, why is he still here? Who's he mm -hmm. waiting for? Mm -hmm. And I remember every day I would say that. And every day she would say nobody. But I knew that that mm -hmm. was just not something she was ready to talk about. And I remember finally I said to her, honey, dad's waiting for someone. Who's he waiting on? Mm -hmm. And she cried and she said, his firstborn son. Mm -hmm. I said, where is he? He won't talk to you. Don't bother. It's terrible. We None of us have talked since my mother died five years ago. Mm. And I said, can I call him? And she, she said, oh, God, he's going to curse you out. I said, honey, I'm tough. Yeah. <laughs> I said, can I call him? Mm -hmm. I got him on the phone and I said, we, we talked about it. And she said, okay, 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 you can call him. So I got him on the phone and I said, this is your, your father's hospice nurse. He's dying. And he started to sob. And I said, he's been waiting for you. And he said, this is this, you know, African-American guy, wonderful, this beautiful African-American family. And he said, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't, he's going to be so mad at me. And I said, say how you feel. And he said, but what do I say? He's dying. I, and I said, do you want me to make a suggestion? Because I don't ever want to tell people, say what sure. you feel. And I said, tell him, I love you. Thank you. I forgive you. Please forgive me. Mm -hmm. And so this family's gathered around the bedside and they're all holding hands and he's on speaker and he gets, I put the, you know, the, the phone closer to the patient, but it's on speaker, but I just, I, I, you mm -hmm. know, hearing is the last to go. Mm -hmm. So it's so important. And so I knew he was waiting for his son. And so his son said, dad, I love you. Thank you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Mm -hmm. And I just saw tears coming down everyone's eyes. And then a tear came out of the patient's eye. Mm -hmm. And 10 minutes later, he took his last breath. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what matters is love. Yeah. What matters is our connections, really nothing else. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I heard you say earlier, you know, there's yeah. Um, so many pieces in what you just shared, but I heard you say earlier, you know, something about, you know, grief is the price we pay for love. And I actually, you know, there's something in, I sort of disagree with that in some ways. I actually oh. think, I think grief is the lover of love. 
Yes, maybe that's that's, that's beautiful. Because I think I've come to realize for me, like I, I was working with some grief that wasn't necessarily around death per se, but it was around just sort of um, ideas of who I thought I was that I, that had lost relationships and dynamics with people in my life that, you know, there's these other things that we grieve, these other small deaths, symbolic deaths that we go through throughout our lives before we ever even get to sort of our final breath moment Mm. and the actual point of death. But, um, and I was sitting with grief and, and I realized that what it was in that moment was I was standing on the edge of my known life to that point and the unknown life ahead of me. And I knew I felt called forward towards something and I didn't necessarily know what it was. I just had a feeling for how I wanted to feel moving forward, not necessarily the specifics of how that would look like. And I just had this clear image that it was like me standing on a cliff where there was like the cliff with like just above the clouds, you know, and all you see around you are clouds or whether it was just like a beach, you know, cliff. And I, and I realized like that there was just that I was being invited to take basically kind of like a leap of faith. And so when I sort of stepped out in that space, I had this feeling of just all of a sudden being held just so gently and so beautifully in this ocean and the ocean was grief and it was love. And it Mm. was both of those things at the same time. And, and that that was what was going to carry me forward actually, that grief was actually the water that moves me forward in my life. And, and I, you know, I think sometimes we do, we, we, we think that sort of that like grief and, and love that, that like, yeah, or you hear the phrase like, oh, grief is just love with nowhere to go anymore. And, Uh, and like, and, and I think sometimes like, right, there's maybe an (laughs) element of that, that sort of, again, in the idea that like, we loved a certain thing that is now no longer in physical form. And so it doesn't have like the love doesn't, it's been, it's been liberated, but I think often we hear that and it's almost like it feeds into this idea almost that death is the punishment at the end mm, of life, no, which I think, birthright. right. Death. And that's what I loved about what you were saying. Death is the birthright. And, you know, I'd sort of started with this question of like, sort of the spirituality and maybe for people who don't feel themselves as spiritual. And what I loved about your answer was that you really brought us into like the sacredness of, of just our bodies that we, that we don't have to conceive of a spirituality that is like outside of us or has deities or angels or whatever. We just have to believe in the preciousness and the sacredness of our own bodies and of, and of our relationships in this life and of what it is to be here and now. Um, and everyone's feelings are not the same. I've worked with so many beliefs. I was raised Quaker. And now I would say that I am Quaker leaning with a little bit of Buddhism. I'm extremely spiritual. I meditate every day. Um, I talk to angels. I do angel cards and angel readings. Um, I, I'm so connected to spirit world. So, but then there are people that come to me that are Muslim that are Buddhist, that are Jewish, that are atheist, that are Catholic, I will read those prayers. I will Mm -hmm. honor your beliefs. What Mm -hmm. I believe doesn't matter. When I'm in that space, 
I'm in their space and I want to know what makes them whole. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to advocate for my patients yeah. in a really powerful way. And that's something I can't do in this modern system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard um, a man, Stephen Jenkinson, he's an author and a musician. I think he does death work and, and grief work as well. Talk about how we don't get to say what our legacy is, mm. right? I think so often we leave, we like live, like, like trying to leave some sort of legacy behind. And he's like, we don't actually get to say what our legacy is. The people we leave behind in what they say about us, that becomes our legacy, Yes. Right. And so we actually, you know, and so that's, you know, this whole, and, and I think sometimes that, that idea of like wanting to, you know, what you were talking about, sort of that we focus so much on extending life, you know, and some of that, I think is like, some of that's just human fear and that's normal. Some of that is like internalized capitalism and kind of this idea that like more is always better, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, you know, some of that. And, and so we can get into sort of this like spiritual and symbolic and kind of like, you know, just kind of this, like, yeah, more is always better. Life is always better. More, 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 you know, mm-hmm. without kind of the question of like, but wait, wait, what's actually the quality here and what's actually, yes. what part does that play in the wider web of life? You know, which, which the earth cannot support unlimited people living forever. <laughs> No. And <laughs> like, if people decide they want to live forever, then we're going to have to stop having children. And like, and that, like, like the, we, we do exist in human bodies that have finite energy and finite timelines. And we live in an earth that has finite resources. And, and like, that is need humans, right? Right. So, well, I mean, it does need humans, sure. but it doesn't need unlimited humans. Right. It doesn't unlimited need, humans. Yes. Right. If we were to look at, you know, if we were looking at from an ecological perspective, you know, you'd, if you saw any other animal completely take over its ecosystem and dominate at the expense of all the others, you'd look at that and say, that's really unsustainable Yes. and something's going to come through and start to shift that. And it's going to have to. And so, you know, I think, yeah. So anyway, and, and, and yes, but, um, yeah, what was that thread that I was sort of following? There was, um, Yeah. So I think, you know, but I think sort of that focus on lengthening our life, like there's sort of this, like, we almost like, it's like our fear of death. We, instead of just being with the fear of that, we project onto it, this desire, we project, we turn away from the fear of death and instead focus on this like desire for immortality. And that's some of where I think this legacy piece starts to come in. Like, what's my legacy going to be? What's my legacy going to be? Cause like my body may not live forever, but my legacy will, you know, and like, which isn't even necessarily true. You know, some people sure have legacies that end up in the history books and like, just get those stories get passed down. But a vast majority of people, like that's not true at a certain point, people will not remember your name. Yes. <laughs> and energetically, we know that energy is neither created nor destroyed. And so we know that energetically our legacy does get passed down. And so, you know, when I was, you know, when he was, when Stephen Jenkinson was speaking about this, about sort of the, you know, that we don't get to determine our legacy, you know, he was also then sort of saying the only thing we get to determine is how we die because that, how we lived you know, love, like you were saying, and then how we died because the, 
the type of death we have and whether it's good and healing for everybody, you know, hard, but healing or whether it's like, and I don't mean unclean in a purity way, but like, like the difference between clean pain and dirty pain. Right. And so there's like the dirt, there's the clean pain that like cleanses the wound, like the disinfectant in the wound. And then there's the dirty pain, which is like where we didn't clean the dirt out and then it gets infected and it festers and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so if we have like clean death, (laughs) you know, it's like, yes, it hurts, but in the end, everybody is actually made more whole and more real through it. And then if we have like dirty death, it's like, you know, people who deny their dying up until the very end and the, then like any wound, there's no resolution. There's none of that. I love you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Thank you. Right. I forgive you. You know, there's none of that opportunity to just have that closure and that death denying and that peace. Right. And so, you know, and so without that, then that that's, then the festering wound is the legacy that we, that gets left, you know? And so that was his point is like the only legacy we have any control over really is actually how we die, which, and we know, you know, you and I, from being more empathic and sensitive, you know, and feeling energies, like, like you feel how that ripples through that does that becomes a generational legacy. It does. Um, it does. And grief, if, if, if it's not dealt with, it's disease and it causes yes. disease. And if we can hold that sacred container for our patients as nurses and nurse coaches um, and practitioners of any kind, um, then there's more healing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard people say, but is there hope? And I always want to say, there's always hope. There's hope for a more comfortable death. There's hope for healing relationships at the end of life. Yeah. There's hope for release. There's mm-hmm. hope, you know, hope changes, but it never goes away. Um, mm-hmm. And I love how you said that, that grief, because I've always said it's the price of love, but it is, it is love and you know i my father died two years ago Mm -hmm. and i left home at the age of 13 and i had never gone back to live there and when he was several years and i have a chosen family i've i've created family because my step family was his family and Um, I needed to create a family of my own as a queer person, as someone on the fringes, I guess, of society. I needed to kind of build my own family. And so I have done that through friends and through friends of family. And I don't know how I got into that. How did I get to that? Just to the fact that um, those relationships. So my father, my father, um, I went through a divorce, a very, very, very painful, painful divorce. My ex-wife left. Um, It was something where I felt we were going to be together forever. And so I felt the grief and the death of my marriage, which Mm. brought me to my knees. Mm. Um, And I came back here to Florida um, to 
to the my my chosen family's four acre sustainable farm here where they grow mm. all their own food and they're off the grid and and um I I worked on healing and then I found out that my father was very sick mm. and we had a lot um he came and asked for my forgiveness um several years ago maybe four years ago um and it was interesting because I'm still working on that forgiveness, but mm. I did tell him, <laughs> I understand, mm. understand, and I love you. And um, my father was an amazing civil rights activist, amazing, amazing resistor. People speak so highly of my dad in circles. They say, oh my God, he's like, you know, he's like up on this pedestal with the Quakers. He was, you know, and he failed me epically as a father. Um, I left home at the age of 13 and I cared for myself. Um, and I had children, uh, twin boys at the age of 17. And my life was very challenging. Um, and so um, I wanted badly to forgive him. And so we had a lot of, he came to the farm. He was, Mike is my chosen dad. And my father was his mentor in Selma and during the hell raising days. And so Mike helped me as a baby. And he said, imagine was playing and I was holding you and I didn't want to let you go. And I found him again so interesting. My dad always said, you'll find family when you come to Florida. You'll find family. What are you talking about, man? What are you talking about, crazy old man? I came here in 2015 and I found family mm. right before my marriage fell apart. And so going back into Philadelphia, going back into the home where I was sexually abused, going back to that wounded time in my life, that 13-year-old, that three-year-old, that four-year-old, you know, from the age of three to eight, I was molested by someone in our sacred community. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I got to that topic because that's really important, is that yeah. I yeah. am a sex abuse survivor and thriver, not just, a, mm -hmm. I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm learning to embrace all that is. Yeah. And in the muck, in the dirt, as I'm sitting here with this heating pad on because I was recently in a car accident and I'm in this huge time of transition and I feel like I'm ranting and I'm making absolutely no sense. <laughs> well, did I answer your question? <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> So no, I love, I love this thread in the story, you know, and you started with sort of your, you know, your dad, um, passing away two years ago, but, but what I'm hearing, and, and I don't know if this was your intention, but what I'm yes. hearing and, and I, and appreciating and what you're sharing, because I think it, it, um, it was something that was on my mind when I was sort of speaking about the difference between good death, clean death, and sort of that, I'm sorry, I love you, forgive me, thank you, you know, kind of like thing is that, you know, what does repair look like when, you know, I was, I've been, I was talking to a friend the other day, you know, sometimes we have to, sometimes love looks like stepping away 
from certain people. Sometimes love looks like ending relationships, right? Love doesn't, we have this idea that repair looks like re coming back together again after a rupture. And sometimes love looks like repairing ourselves to come to a place where we can say, I understand, even if I can't bring myself to forgiveness yet, understanding is the most forgiving I can get mm. because that is, that is the repair, right? I have to repair internally. I have to repair for myself and trust that that will repair the rupture between us without needing that rupture to look like us coming back together again. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I love that you kind of took us there a little bit with your story again, whether or not that was your intention, I'm not sure, but <laughs> because we were talking about sort of this, like good death, clean death, you know, messy death, pain death. Right. And like, and, and I was aware as I was sort of saying that I'm like, at what point here though, do we bring in that? Like, what does, and so maybe this is a question, what does clean death look like when, when it may be the most loving thing to not be in relationship with the person who's passing or, you know, when, when the closest you can get to it is like, I see you, I understand you. I need to like, I need to love me. And that means letting you go through your process, whatever that is and releasing you and like, but like not from a distance, you know, oh, and, what a great. and not showing up as the, with, as the family at the deathbed and not, you know, because some ruptures, yeah. Some ruptures repair having looks like not having relationship anymore. Healthy boundaries. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you for even bringing that up. So yes, I went back here. I was going back to a home I had run away from and I was showing up, I was moving up to the third floor where I was raped and molested as a child. So that middle room that I had never made any kind of amends with, I, I had to go in there and mm. create a sacred space to my little girl that could not be protected in that moment. Mm. And to kind of embrace, re-embrace that, that space, that space where my childhood was taken mm. from me. And there was so much pain and it was so hard. And, you know, my father created another family and, you know, it happens a lot with daughters and daughters are discarded and the step family, you know, he created a new family and I was the other. And um, I had to raise myself and raise my children. And so there wasn't going to be a full thing, but I wanted to show up and so here I was, I was a hospice nurse. My partner is also, Olivia is also a hospice nurse. Um, and we wanted so badly to help my dad to have a good death. Mm -hmm. And my dad did not want to talk about death. All he wanted <laughs> to talk about was how bad politics were today and how, you know, how, he, he just wanted to get his last vote in before he died, hoping that Trump would not win again. And um, my stepfamily was just, nasty. And um, I was not a part of that. And so I had to show up in a really powerful way and take care of myself, but also take care of a stepmother who was never kind to me. Yeah. And she became sick when I was there. She kept falling. And at some point I said, I can't pick you up anymore. We're going to have to call 911. Um, and she was very disruptive in 
the care that my father wanted, that I wanted to give. And there was just a lot of muck and mess. And so I, I had some time with my dad, but he said, I don't want you to be my hospice nurse. I don't want you to be my nurse, you're my daughter. And so it was so hard for because he, he had pulmonary fibrosis and he couldn't breathe. And I kept saying, dad, dad, you need morphine. You need Ativan. Those will help you to relax because when you can't breathe, you get anxious. Yeah. He's like, oh, no, I don't do that. <laughs> and so finally the, the hospice nurse came and I had been saying, dad, you know, maybe just a little Ativan, maybe, maybe hospice. Oh, I'm not dying. I'm not getting on hospice. I said, well, dad, you don't have to be dying to be on hospice. You just need to know that maybe you have a little less time. And he resisted all of it. And I said, well, you know, you're going to fall down the stairs. You know, he lives in this big house and he goes, if I fall down the stairs, I don't care. I'm leaving here in a body bag. And so I had to say, okay, dad, you're leaving here in a body bag. And what are your priorities? And so he wanted, you talked about legacy. He wanted to be remembered. And so I felt it was important for certain things of him to be remembered, all of his hell raising days, you know, the draft board burglary and all these other things that were really big deals. And so I started interviewing him and it was so important to me to just learn about some of those resistant things and just to see him as a flawed human on the path, he did the best that he could and mm -hmm. um he married someone who was not interested in being a parent for me and so I had to show up in all of this for you know to show up just in the same house that I had run away from that I was abused in go back and care for my dad right after my d divorce the, you know with this heavy heart mm -hmm. and so I was bringing my grief and all my stuff with me and I showed up and he had double pneumonia and he was skinny and he couldn't get out of bed. And my stepmother was tired of caring for him. So she just said, you take care of it. And so I just had to, had to let go. And I feel like that's so big in life is mm. learning to just let go. I think one of my favorite things is let go or be dragged. Mm -hmm. or be dragged. <laughs> and so I showed up in all the mess and, you know, my, my brothers, my stepbrothers, um, you know, and all the muck, all the, the, the dysfunctional family stuff. And um, the, a week or so before my father died, uh, he was on oxygen. He was tripping over it. He was falling. He wasn't listening to me. And I had to let go. I had to say, okay, you want your independence and your independence matters. And if that matters to you, and that means falling on the floor, then I have to say, okay, you're not going to listen to me. And I got a phone call from my stepmother saying, you have to come now. And I had um, given him his favorite food. I remember the night before he died, um, he loved ice cream. And so I got him this like ice cream that was just so delicious. And he, I just remember him going, God, God, this is good. And he ate the large meal. And he always said to me, I never want to be in a diaper. I'm a one diaper man. If I ever have to crap my pants, I'm out of here. And I feel the same way. I, I don't want to be in a diaper. Mm -hmm. um, and so I get to him and he's unresponsive at this point and he's in his bed. And I want to go back to saying, my father said, I want you to be my nurse. I don't want to suffer. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what does that mean to you, dad, that you want me to be your nurse now? And he said, just don't let me suffer. And so I said, I will do my best. I will do my best.
And so when I was there, he was so, in that moment, I wasn't a hospice nurse. I was a grieving daughter. Mm-hmm. And I called my brothers. First of all, I couldn't believe that my stepmother had called me first. Like she called mm-hmm. me first, which is mm-hmm. just the strangest thing. I was always the last to be called for anything. Um, and so that meant a lot to me. And I called my, my, my stepbrothers and I said, daddy's dying. And uh, my brother Simeon sat at the bottom of the bed. And my brother Andrew, who's like the golden child, sat next to my stepmother. And I, I helped to boost her into bed the best that I could because they had a very close relationship. And he was, you know, on his back and he was mouth breathing. And she's, I helped her to kind of get to here so she mm-hmm. could just listen. And I medicated him to keep him comfortable. And um, we were there around the deathbed for probably about four hours. Mm-hmm. And he got his wish. He was a one diaper man. Mm-hmm. And the when he finally did die, um, I there was a moment where I felt that I had failed him because I said to my brother, well, what are his wishes about? What does he want? And Andrew said, I don't know. And I was like, damn it. (laughs) I I couldn't save this. And you know what? I can't. I can only talk about my own death and my own wishes. I can't, you know, I can't totally make sure everybody's going to be perfect. And so I just had to show up for all of that, but he got what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what is so important to me is whatever you know, I see patients that are, have cancer, that are, the oncologists struggle so much to tell them there's nothing else that we can do for you. Yeah, yeah. And I see the suffering around that. And I want to be able to say to someone, what do you need now? Yeah. If you want to fight, let's fight. Right. If you want to say, if you want me to go to your oncologist and say, hey, I'm done. Mm -hmm. You want me to sit around the kitchen table and explain to your family? You know, do you want, you know, people want to do all kinds of things. Some people want to, they want to see if their son will get sober before they die. Okay, let's do an intervention. It might work. It might not. Mm -hmm. What do you want? Where do you want to die? How do you want to die? Do you want death with dignity? I can't believe I even have to ask that question. (laughs) There's only death with dignity in certain states. Yeah. You want to get to that state? Because I'll I'll get you there. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I want to be a part of helping people to feel so, to shed, to shed the crap and resolve the relationships and live the rest of their life on their own terms. And, and do you want a living funeral? Do you want a celebration of life? I want to be in the eternal, there's a place called eternal reefs. So I'm making that plan. And, you know, I've decided that my POA, the person who makes all my decisions is my most beloved sister and best friend, because she's the only one you know, my kids were like, oh, I'll keep you on a ventilator forever. And I was like, oh, no, you won't, because you're yeah. not making that decision, you know? <laughs> and, and that's important stuff to talk yeah. about. Yeah. I don't, you know, to hear at the end of life in hospice, the entire family go, well, what did she want? I don't know what she wanted, you know? And yeah, 
it's so important. And I can only do so much Reiki on a dying person. And I can only do so much of their prayer and what they need. And I want to be able to help them earlier. Yeah. Well, because, you know, I think what I'm, some of what I'm hearing and what you're sort of sharing is, and and we've sort of, this is a thread that kind of came up a little bit earlier too, but, but that idea, um, sorry, a bee is buzzing around me, (laughs) the busy bee, (laughs) um, you know, that idea that if we live assuming that death is coming and not avoiding the conversation or thinking that somehow life can be extended infinitely, we actually, A, are available for more preciousness in the life that is there, what we have. And B, then, yes, of course, like our body is naturally afraid of dying, right? Mm. That is part of our survival mechanisms. Mm. So like, yes, if you start holding your breath, you will fear, like eventually you'll start to feel fear and some level of panic sinking, seeping up, you know, that then makes us take a big breath in, right? Like, Mm. like, you know, we, or, or release the breath that we're holding or whatever it may be. And so, you know, yes, we have physiological fear responses, right? Like something, something starts coming at us and we go into that fight or flight, right? Like that is part of the survival of the species. So like, of course, a certain amount of fear of death, I think is like natural and innate to our like physical sense, which physical self, which knows that it's fragile, which knows that it's finite, which knows that, you know, yeah, that, that there's an end coming to all of this and doesn't want it to come too soon. That wants to be around to have this like full life that wants to love, that wants to experience things. Right. And so that's, you know, that's a really beautiful thing. And, you know, I've also heard, and this also came from sort of Stephen Jenkinson was, was this distinction between getting older and becoming an elder Mm. and that becoming an elder eldership, elderhood, eldership is actually a role in society that again, we don't get to say we're an elder so much, right? Like people Mm -hmm. decide we're an elder because there's a quality to us Mm -hmm. as we age that people are drawn to as a source of wisdom, as a source of humility, as a source of love and compassion, right? And for me, what it feels like is it feels like people who become elders are the ones who let life, like that velveteen rabbit quote, like that idea that like, um, we become like, and like we become ragged, we become worn down, we become well-loved through life. And then, and like at the end, um, you're, it may not look pretty, but, mm-hmm. but to the ones who know, like, it's, it's actually the most beautiful thing because it shows that you've really like been through life. Right. And so for me, it's like, yeah, it feels like elderhood is this, is this, becoming where we let life rub us more raw and real rather Mm. than letting the friction of life build calluses up around us. Mm. Right. I just sort of feel like there's sort of these two main ways of responding to life. And one is to let it make us thicker and harder and more resistant (laughs) and sort of more isolated in some ways. And the other is to like let it just wear us down. And like, really for me, that's part of what grief is. And so like some of that too, is whether or not we allow grief into our lives because grief will 
like wear, like wear us down, wash us clean. We become like that beach glass, you know, tumble, tumble, tumbled, right. Smooth. And, 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 um, you know, and so that to me too, is some of it is like, if we live life in the direction of elderhood, rather than just becoming older, then when you arrive at the moment of death, yes, there may be discomfort. Yes, there may be fear. Yes, there may be whatever is there, but there's also a sense of completion and readiness. And, and so that's where like, like how soon do we start, you know, if we don't like, yeah, if you're already actively dying, realizing that you want to become an elder, not just older, it's like maybe a little too late. <laughs> you know? Like realizing you want to repair when you're already in a coma or are already sort of mentally checked out, you know, or, you know, are just not, yeah, just not as, you know, and that's not to say it can't still happen. I believe it can. Um, but it, it can become harder in those moments. And so, yeah, like what you're sharing that, like starting earlier, you know, how do we get on these paths of, you know, yeah. Of like, am I, what am I living for here? I'm living to become an elder, you know? And that means like being fully present in the life that I have while I have it. So that then when the time comes for me to transition to the other side, I don't have regrets. And, and it's as smooth a uh, transition as could possibly be because I haven't run from it my whole life. You know, that whole, like what we resist persists thing, you know, or we know in, in other types of trauma work and, and healing work, you know, that, yeah, your shadow, you know, is the thing that you don't want to look at that you push down and avoid. And then it finds its sneaky ways out. It still comes out anyway. It doesn't go anywhere. It's still there. It's just if we're unconscious of it, or we're trying to force it into our unconscious, then we're actually not skillfully working with it. And it's, you know, it actually makes us more a victim to it rather than in a more empowered, co-creative place with it, you know, more whole, more empowered, more co-creative. And so it feels like death is, is like that, like death is, is the shadow, right? It's like all of our shadow. You know? yeah, I remember my dad saying he had fallen and he said, I feel like the grim reaper came for me. And I agree with that. We, we, none of us know when we're going to go. And people will say to me all the time, I'll see you next week. And I'm like, maybe, you know, so I live um, this might be the Buddhist part of me, uh, the part where I realize the temporariness of everything. Mm -hmm. If I wash my car, I say, hey, thank you for taking me where you've taken me and thank you. I know you're not mine. I know you will crash. You will be stolen. Something will happen. Thank you. And every day, now, as I live in this trailer park in Trump land, um, and I'm trying to recuperate, I'm recuperating from um, an auto accident, mm -hmm. and um, my partner's in great transition, just left a long-term job, rented out a long-term house, had her, someone hit us, totaled car, you know, she's from the South, so she's used to racists. Um, and I'm not. So I just, every day I have to practice letting that go mm -hmm. and feeling that need to protect her. 
Um, but then her spirituality is so wonderful that, you know, every day we, we um, meditate and we invite spirit and angels and sacred ones and ancestors and everyone into our life. And I don't have the same fear, I guess, that lots of people have around death. In fact, mm -hmm. I've never thought that I would live to be an elder. Mm -hmm. So I didn't either. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the fact that I'm going to be 52 years old <laughs> and that I have 34 year old twin boys and I'm here, you know, so every day I'm grateful mm. and um, I'm practicing letting go. I'm not working right now. Mm -hmm. um, she's starting to work. There's mm -hmm. great transition. And I just know that the only thing I have control over is my own behavior. And if I'm not met, if I'm not meditating and I'm not caring for myself, I am all the way live. So mm -hmm. I have to like really care for myself. And so I'm trying so hard to have this be a tender time for me um, amidst all of this chaos and um, to care for myself because as nurses and caregivers, we don't do that enough. And I always remind my friends and everyone that we can't serve from an empty vessel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a hole in my bucket right now. And you had said about saying goodbye. I recently said goodbye to my step family and I didn't say goodbye. I just decided that I, I didn't want to go to those loveless places anymore. And so I can send love and I practice forgiveness every day because I don't want to carry around that rock. Yeah, we forgive, we forgive for ourselves, not for others. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I continuously am dropping that rock. And, um, you know, my father had lied to me and he told me that he had rectified his will. And to be clear, I don't care about um monetary possessions because we're born with nothing we die with nothing and I'm a minimalist and I I know that my life is abundant and abundance will come to me and that is just how I I live my life and so I'm always universes and spirit always providing for me so I don't have that need to take 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 and I've been very lucky in my life um, things have just been given to me and I kind of feel like that's the more we give the more we get not to give because you want something, but it's just the energy. We're energy. And the more we give, the more we receive. And I have been so blessed um, with a community where I can say, hey, I need some help right now. And, and we show up. I've been reading How We Show Up, which is an amazing book. I recommend that to anyone mm. who's trying to build community. Mm. Um, and you know, I would say that we all need to know what our wishes are at the end of life. I, I would say that you do as well. And how old are you? You're young. Mm -hmm, 37. Okay. Do you mm -hmm. have your end of life stuff? Figured? I don't. And I was thinking about that as we were having this conversation. I was like, yeah, that would be, well, I I've, I've, I've spoken some to some of my family about, you know, my parents and my brother about some things. So I haven't codified anything in writing, but we've, we will all forget spoken about it. I just want it. to tell you, if it's not in writing, they will all forget it's, and it's not on purpose. It's yeah. like this love well, it's shock and grief. I mean, oh. yeah, it's, yeah. 
Absolutely. So I have tried so hard to get that. And I, I encourage you to really sit down mm -hmm. and think about, I tell people, who do you want to make your healthcare decisions? Mm -hmm. um, because if you pick that wrong person, and sometimes family is not the people to yeah. ask, yeah. you know? And so if you get that out of the way, and it's in writing and you're able to sit down with your family, you know, like my kids know my best friend Ingrid and their auntie is making my decisions. And no, I don't want a ventilator and no, I don't want artificial feeding and no, I, um, and I've been very clear even about the environment that I want and don't want because I'm a highly sensitive person. I hate bright lights. I hate loud noises. I hate scratchy things. And so I literally went so far as to, to just write out everything that I wanted. Mm. I want incense burning. I want candles. I want music. Music is everything to me. I want mm -hmm. music. I want people telling stories of how I made their lives better. Mm. I, I'm okay with emotional pain, but physical pain, I feel it on like a visceral level. Mm -hmm. So this back pain for me, you know, um, is more painful than dealing with, you know, my child rape and molestation and running away and having children homeless and all of the things that I had to do to care for them and all the traumas that I have overcome and that I'm dealing with. You know, being being human is messy, and just because I'm I'm a medical provider and a healer doesn't mean that I don't have a whole bunch of stuff that I still sure. need to address. Sure. And I have had this calling from plant medicine recently, and it's just been the medicine has been calling me, and so mm. I am so excited to just be on this fertile journey with mm -hmm. people like you. I'm so grateful to have you in my life. Mm -hmm. And people like Kristen, mm -hmm. um, you know, our friend who tragically lost her husband suddenly and mm -hmm. being able to walk on that grief journey with her and being able with grief, you know, I said to her the other day, it's messy. There's no time limit. And mm -hmm. people are going to say really stupid shit like your husband yeah. died a year ago. Aren't you over it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I said to yeah. her, when people say that, it's okay to say that's not helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe to have that be a teaching moment. Yeah. Yeah. And not that it's on you to teach people, right? When you're in grief, but yeah. yeah but if you want to mm -hmm. say that's not if helpful. Wanna, yeah. Or if you want to leave the room and let me tell you my grief, I can tell you a funny story. I found out that my father had uh, left me 10% in the will and had left my one brother four to the other 50. And I got it via text message in the middle of the night. And a rage, just an mm. absolute rage came over me. And it was three o'clock in the morning. And I thought, of course he only gave me 10%. That's about what he gave me in life. Mm. And then I happened to see this ball jar that is now my water vessel, but it was mm -hmm. it used to hold his ashes. And I grabbed it and I went outside and I screamed and I cried and I prayed and I got mm. on my knees and I banished him 
from from my life, from my thought processes, every all of the things that harmed me. And it was ugly and I was angry. And do you know what I did with the ashes when I was done with all of that? Mm. I poured them in the street and I ran them over many times. <laughs> and I felt relief. I'm going to run over your bones every day for the rest of the time that I'm here. Mm. And I'm not proud of that. But that was what I needed mm-hmm. for my healing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mike and Claire, my, 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 my dearest people, some of my dearest people, they went outside and they said, there's a bunch of white stuff in the driveway. Is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, that's my dad. It was just his ashes. And they were like, and I said, everything's okay now. And, you know, like they were kind of like, whoa. And like, you know, and I, I actually did a video of it that I never even shared. But I said, sometimes grief is anger. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's ugly. Sometimes mm-hmm. you want to take ashes and throw them in the street and run them over. Sometimes you don't ever want to speak the name of that person again. Mm-hmm. I loved my father and my father loved me in the only way he knew how and he did not yeah. And he could not show up for me. And he was an amazing father to my brothers. He protected them. He did everything for them that he could not do for me. And honestly, if I were to have had children later on in life, my kids would probably say the same thing about me. Mm -hmm. Damn, she's being a better mom. You know, so as we learn and as we grow, we get better. I wasn't a great parent to two babies at 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a great parent to me. And now I forgive him more, but now I drink water out of, you know, and part of the grief before I did that was I drank his ashes. I missed him so badly that I wanted him inside of me. Mm. And I had transferred the ashes and dumped a lot of it. And there was still some in there and I couldn't get it out. And so I put water in there and I drank them. And mm. then I vomited. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally grossed out. And then I also felt like, wow, he really is inside of me. And mm. I am so many pieces of my father. I am so many things that he is. And I am so many things that he is not. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that I was there at his death. And I'm so grateful that I can say goodbye to my step family that can't hold space for me and show up for me in the way that I need for whatever their reasons are. Mm. And I have blocked them. I've blocked them on social media. I've blocked them um, on the phone. And it may not stay that way. But for right now, I need that boundary. You didn't show up for me. You didn't protect me. You are abusive. And I don't want to be around that. And that mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that I can say that today. That I want my circle to be loving and kind and real and mm-hmm. messy and everything mm-hmm. else but showing up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah, Mm. that's important. It's important for me to show up even in the mess, in the muck, because that's where we grow. We don't grow in the comfortable places. Yeah. So I'm in the muck right now Mm -hmm. and I'm doing deep trauma work and I'm doing deep grief work and, um, 
I'm temporarily not doing nursing and I can't wait to be able to launch the business that I want to launch. And I've got providers that want to collaborate and I'm so mm -hmm. excited because the fertile ground is wonderful. Yeah. But right now I need to sit in my, I don't want to say brokenness, in my- In your journey as it is right now. My journey, I need to continue to heal so that yeah. I can be a better healer. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for, yeah, all of what you've shared and, and for modeling that walking your talk <laughs> and, um, it's not easy. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it ain't. <laughs> um, yeah. So with sort of that, that feels like a beautiful segue into like, yes, you're sort of pausing and resting right now, but is there a way if people wanted to sort of connect or find you or, um, is, are you open to that? And I if not, that's okay. I'm absolutely open. To okay. That. So is there a way that you would, yeah, like to invite so people to do that? Could, you could reach me on my mm -hmm. email okay. and that is toward bliss at gmail.com. Yep. And I'll put that um, in the show notes. Yep. Because we are all working toward bliss regardless mm -hmm. of our human state. And I am, I just want to thank you for inviting me yeah. into the sacred space and for asking me to mm -hmm. be here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll invite everyone everyone who's listening to just kind of take a few deep breaths this has been a very rich fertile conversation and i'm also aware that that yeah it's also been one that um may have stirred emotions and um probably did stir some emotions certainly did in and, me did yeah, it in me? yeah me too yeah and so let's just um, take a moment and maybe if it feels good, wherever you are, just bring a hand to the center of your chest, maybe bring another hand to your low abdomen and just feel those points of connection with your own body. With some of these centers of emotion, if the emotion feels really big and connecting in deeper with your body feels like it amplifies the emotion. You might want to bring one of your hands actually to a surface next to your body or outside of your body somehow. So that you're also aware that yes, there's what you're feeling and there's also still the world around you, right? There's still a bigger container than just what you're feeling. That thank the fire that we gathered around. We thank all of those. We thank, yeah, we just thank all of the kin who are mm. here. All of the kin. Mm -hmm. And just invite this conversation to gently settle and integrate in its time and in its way for the evolution of all of us.
So thank you. Again, you can always share these episodes with friends. You can rate them. You can subscribe. All the all the stuff that just helps the podcast continue to grow and helps new people to find these conversations. And, you know, that's that's the point. I want these conversations to, yeah, I want to have the conversations that, you know, maybe in certain <clears throat> circles we're having, but we're not having in the wider world. And I want to... Um, yeah, I want to start, you know, this is how we change culture, you know, and, and, and how we change institutions, how we change the world we live in is we change our inner state and we, our inner culture and our outer culture. And that's, you know, that's what I'm aiming to do with these conversations. So you can help that happen by spreading the words, spreading the conversation and um, yeah. And until then, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Evelyn.